So, podcast number 21. I know it's been a while since we've been uh, putting these out. I always say that. I always say we're going to get out there more. And then we travel around the world and do other things and get caught up in work. And everybody knows what that's like. Everybody's busy. It's always interesting, though. Like I have to go back and go, hey, what podcast are we even doing again? Oh, yeah, it's 21. And so I end up looking at the statistics. And you see something like the 10th of June, you know, a big influx, like 60 people listen to our podcast on the 10th of June. Was it like raining around the world or something that I should be aware of? Like everybody was stuck indoors that day? All right, enough of that. What we're going to be looking at today is GRIMP. We do a lot of podcasts on GRIMP. They're great events. They really are. Unless you're running, you know, 100 rescues a year and there's teams out there that are, it is about as realistic as you can get in regards to doing rescues and honing your craft and learning your skills. So, Today, Grimp Europe was just held again, sponsored by Courant. They took the event over from Petzl a couple years ago. And uh, overall, not a bad event this year. There's going to be some complaints, I know, about the amount of waiting in between some of the scenarios. However, everybody finished all the scenarios. There were eight scenarios this year over three years. We'll talk about those in a bit. And as far as the scenarios go, you're going to hear the odd person complaining that they weren't realistic enough as per like a rope rescue type scenario. Some of them were pickoffs and what have you. There were a lot of scenarios though that were more based on skills. From that point of view, this was one of the more technically challenging events that I have attended and I've attended a few of them. So without further ado, we're going to talk about GRIMP. We're going to also talk about a couple of the organizational culture things of Europe. And we're going to talk about a couple of pieces of equipment that we used over there. The clutch, the ninja, the atom harness. So, GRIMP, day one, Thursday. Started with uh, just getting everybody moving through. Some ascend and descend, some running, some a little bit of confined space. More likely just to make sure that everybody was on par to play this year. I know last year, I think they pulled four or five teams off the day one event. So this year, they'd obviously just set the bar and kind of like, hey, can you meet this? It was about, uh, I threw them on my watch, throw a kudos out to Sunto. They provided some sponsorship. Why wouldn't I? I put it on my watch. It was about a two and a half, 2.8 kilometer route that they had up the Citadel and in the moor. You basically had to run up the Citadel, ascend a rope, um, like a caving ladder, sorry, not a rope ladder, a caving ladder, pick up loaded inch and a half fire hose, good, I think probably 150 or 200 feet of it, and run that up one of those typical military hills where you crest the first one and, oh, there's another, and you crest another, and, oh, there's another, but you can't see it from the bottom of each one. You know, there's those soul-crushing things. Uh, We did four of those, and then into a rappel, and then into a Uh, like a labyrinth type system you know the old fort kind of cave type system then we came out of that and then it was a bit of a sprint and then it was an ascend and then it was another rappel and then it was another sprint so yeah a good way to spend uh, 30 minutes of your time Uh, quite winded aid showed on that one but uh, overall team did fairly well and that led into Friday Friday was four events on the Friday and uh yeah, 
pretty decent events on the Friday. Quite a lot of fun. Went to a city called Denant. Denant. Uh, probably slaughtered that pronunciation. I apologize to all the citizens that live there. What a location, though. Uh, it's like you're driving along and the, the earth just falls away into this uh, valley created by the river. And it's, um, it's incredible. They've got a, a citadel or a fort up on one side of it. Uh, you're overlooking just some outstanding views. So the scenarios there, there was a raising of a patient, moving them vertically through a, a lobster crop. You've seen these before. If you've been to Grimp, just the skill set of moving a loaded stretcher from the horizontal, vertical to horizontal, doing some edge transitions with that. One of the other skill sets was a pickoff, but it was kind of cool because your patient was down below and as your rescuer went over, another patient appeared in the window, requiring your team leader to do a little bit of triage, a little bit of prioritization, throw another rescuer into play, order to raise those people up. You know, a bit of a team lead challenge there. That was kind of nice. Another one, they had a backboard there that was rated for lifting and you had to go down and package the patient in that particular backboard. So you had to rip your stretcher apart, bring those components with you down there in order to rig that backboard. Um, And you had to move them from the horizontal to the vertical back into the horizontal through a pipe that was too small for a stretcher. So the backboard had to be used. And then the last scenario there It was a joyful one. It was a 70 to 75 meter climb up a bridge. From there, all members had to climb, plus you had to raise your patient up as well. So just a little bit of sweat and a little bit of hauling, getting your patient up those 70 meters. Um, Yeah, a lot of fun with stuff like that. Day two, one of the scenarios was stood down. They said it was for wind. I also heard it was because of staffing issues either or, whatever. At the end of the day, we did three scenarios on day two. There was a roof scenario where we raised from one side, lowered the patient over on the other side of the roof. No roof anchors, all ground anchors. There was a scenario inside of a dam system where you had to raise the patient up a couple levels, almost like a confined space. Not really, it's open, but that same sort of style. Just a couple different rigging options. And last but not least, there was a scenario that involved a cross haul, but required one of your rescuers to climb up 40 meters, horizontally traverse through some traverse and some rebelay, the underside of a bridge that was about 20 meters, and then set up up top there, that's how we did it, for a cross haul, ran everything down from the bottom, we had another rescuer climb up. And the initial set of lines, so if you picture it, the initial set of lines, we had a change of direction. The far set of lines, lines coming down either side of this bridge, had another change of direction. We had to cross-haul a medic and a rescuer over to the car, the medic being provided to us, you know, no rope skills, in order to have her provide notionally a IV start onto our patient, and then we could lift our patient out of the car, weren't allowed to touch the ground, all flowing lava, hot electrical, you get the idea, and then move them further back away from the scenario. The scenario ended when everybody was back down on one side or the other. So as you can see with that and the 70 meter climb on day two, in which all team members had to climb, we set up a raising system, we used a uh, used protractions on that one, lighter to climb than climbing with clutches. 
And so we basically did a twin tension raise on the protractions, um, started raising with the uh, rescuer attached as we still had climbers on rope. So we had climb one climber, the other climber would climb the safety and make the first climbers main their safety. So we had two climbers going up at once. And uh, we got the first two climbers up. They started rigging the top of this. Then we had the next two climbers go. And while those two climbers were going, we started raising the package. Once those two climbers, so we had four up top were there, the rescuer did a line-to-line transfer off of the package onto the climbing ropes and ascended then tethered to the package the rest of the way, which made the haul a heck of a lot easier. Of course, being on a bridge, you're hauling down like what would be like a sidewalk. They actually closed the lane. So you're up, not a lot of sidewalks on bridges. So we're doing a haul perpendicular to the actual raise. A couple change of directions, obviously a little bit of friction with some edges there, what whatnot. But like I was saying, between that and the other one, you can see there was a little bit of rope access skills required. That's not surprising. Rope access is taught in the Grimp schools, in the rope rescue schools, in most of the French-speaking parts of Europe. So French Belgium, um, French Switzerland, French Switzerland, pardon, and France. Do learn a lot of rope access in their grimp or their rescue training. So it's not surprising to have those types of rope access skills required inside of those events. So that was the events. Um, we were really worried about points. You've heard, if you've listened to my podcast in the past, comments last year about speed versus safety. And this year, there didn't seem to be a lot of people taking points off. And we were thinking going through, wow, we really need to up the game. we got to get some speed in here because this is going to be another speed event. Lo and behold, when the event was over and you started talking to some of the staff and you started looking at some of the marks, people that were faster than us, but sloppier than us, or were down to single points at times, the stuff that we thought wasn't getting noted or called was there was people in different locations with things like binoculars, long-range cameras on teams, and those people were also seen to be taking notes. And so these sloppy riggings, while they might not have got stopped on the day, it was certainly noticed. Obviously, anything unsafe or, you know, dramatically unsafe was stopped. But some of these things where you look beside you went, wow, these guys are killing it. I mean, you know, let's just stick with our game plan. You know, maybe they're being a little sloppy. Maybe they're being what we consider a little unsafe. We'll stick with our game plan. And that seemed to work because lo and behold, when it came down to the actual crunch time and you got the results and the points, those teams that we noted out there did get some deductions, obviously, in the points for that. So this wasn't just a speed event, which was great. Um, when you have the chance to sit back after a week and look at this retrospectively and say, hey, speed had a factor in this. Absolutely. But safety, cleanness, neatness, as uh, the French term it sometimes, style, your style on your edge transition was lacking. So I'm going to knock you a few points. Um, That definitely came into account. It's hard to say whether or not getting feedback or not on site would have made it any different. Here we got limited feedback on site. Uh, we got told the odd time, I think once, sorry, hey, you lost a couple points for this. Besides that, we were told time. We weren't given a lot of other feedback, however. 
This did make it go a little quicker. There wasn't the arguing that generally occurs at Grimp Day. And at the end of the day, it seemed to work out in the wash. People placed, relatively speaking, where they probably should have. And so from that, they did a very good job. You don't get that feedback, however. And like I said, I'm torn. This type of event, if it's more of a training event, you want that feedback. If it's more of a competition like it is, then it's about the rankings. So you can kind of look at both sides of the coin in that one. So there you go. Worries about points turned out to not be a worry. The waiting we spoke about, it would have been nice to have another event on that third day, that fourth event, in order to keep the teams moving. I think we caught about two hours worth of sleep time there, which is great for the overseas teams, helps us catch up on our jet lag. But it would have been nice to have that event in there in order to change it up. Um, Once again, the event was very technical this year. When I look at an event like Grimp North America, which I found to be more realistic. I mean, I was involved in the some of the setup of that. So, I mean, let's put that out there with a grain of salt. But this event was more technical. There was a lot more rope climbing. Grimp North America, I think we might have climbed 40 feet. I mean, here, 70 meter climb, we're talking uh, 200 and some odd feet, 220, 215-ish feet of rope climbing. That's a lot of rope to put underneath your bum when you're moving through it. So, uh, the rebelays climbing underneath that bridge. There's a lot of North American fire department rescue teams that wouldn't be able to complete that task. They're not going to be able to read belay. They're not going to be able, I won't call it a rebelay. I wouldn't call it a horizontal aid either. The Europeans are very fond of doing these very short, you'd almost call it a short rebelay, but there's not enough rope to rebelay it almost. Um, but it's very awkward to aid because they're a good six feet or so apart, so you can't reach one anchor to the next. I, I don't know what they call them. If you've been over there, you'll know what I'm talking about. That's another system that people have to move their way through. So on something like the bridge, your typical fire department, North American fire department team, having to climb through, let's call that a, a horizontal rope section, plus rebelays would certainly be a difficult task for most North American fire departments. So in that aspect, this was definitely more of a technical event. They wanted to see some technical skills that you had the know-how in order to do this. So that, you know, we talk a little bit now about this type of rope and going to bust into a little bit of European culture, I guess, rescue culture. And this is rescue culture. I'm not, you know, trying to stereotype Europeans in general. I love going over there. Um, I think we worked it out. I spent 12 weeks so far in the city of Namur. It's nothing like spending three months in a town. They have a different culture, though, than we do, certainly around rope and rope rescue. As mentioned, their Grimp schools, their basic course is three weeks. So when you think about, hey, you know, I went out and did my NFPA 1001, or sorry, 1006, 1670 kind of cert for my rope, you know, awareness ops tech, what's that, you know? 80 hours, a couple of weeks. These folks are getting another whole week on top of that. And that's where this rope access comes in. In their school, we ran the rope access kind of challenge uh, course at the Mechelen Fire Department. Shout out to them. We came and trained with them and the SCART team out of Netherlands a couple days before the event, got to rappel off another cathedral. Great time. 
But Mechelen has that rope course set up inside of their fire hall. And I would be hard-pressed to say that, uh, I mean, I know two of my fire department rescue team could do it because they were there. Uh, There's a couple other guys on our team that do work for Ronan and do have that skill set. But I would say as a general, it would be hard-pressed for our fire department team to make their way through that, especially in the required time. Um, It consists of some ascending, some descending, some rebelaying, some horizontal aiding type stuff. All with uh, and not passing in there as well on the ascend and descend, and all within a certain time limit. And if you're a rope access tech, you're thinking, hey, you know, level one, you know, level two ish kind of sprat training, and we'd be good to go with this. But once again, for your general firefighter, that's probably not the case. So, from their culture, they're coming to these events thinking a little bit more in that mindset. Um, timings. It's not that they don't do timings in Europe. It's that in North America, timings are hard and they're hard there as well, except for we have a tendency. I know when I was in the army, you know, okay, I want the troops here at nine o'clock. So, you know, Sergeant Major gets the messages passed down. Okay, we need to be here at 10 to nine. It goes down to, you know, your platoon commanders or sorry, your platoon warrants, platoon warrants are like, I want troops there at quarter to nine. You know, it gets down to the section commanders. Okay, we're going to shake out at 830 here in order to, you know, you get the idea. And the next thing you know, you got troops standing on the parade square at 4 a.m. for a 9 a.m. start. That's kind of pushed into the fire service a bit. It's kind of that, oh, let's hurry up and wait here in order to get stuff done. And yes, there was waiting around Grimp, but when they say, hey, it's an eight o'clock start, we show up at 10 to eight thinking, okay, this is going to be set up, ready to go because at eight o'clock, the buzzer's going to go and I'm going to be sprinting down the stairs. No, an eight o'clock start means that's when the staff's going to show up and start actually rigging the thing. It's an eight o'clock start. It's not a seven o'clock start for the staff and, you know, 7.35 for the uh, um, contestants and, you know, 7.45 for the evaluators and 7.50 for the viewers. No, it's, it's an eight o'clock start. And you've kind of got to wrap your head around that because that's just the way it is there. And they are a little more allowing and giving you time to do stuff. Hey, I want five minutes just to think about this. Sure, no problem. You know, if it's one of those where as soon as we give the brief time starts and as soon as you give the brief time starts, some of them weren't that way. Hey, chat with your team, come up with a solution and then let me know when you're ready to go. And it was very laissez-faire that way where I know a lot of times in North America, it's going to be, well, there's your scenario, go. And you're going to have to do all that thinking on the fly. We're here and perhaps because of the safety, they wanted to make sure people had a little bit more time to think about it. Don't know. That's speculative on my behalf. But that's generally a little more European. As well, the whole, hey, I'm going to check in and put my name on a list to go to the next scenario. And then I'm going to do the typical North American thing and badger you for a while to see if I can get my name higher on the list or perhaps gain some favor because, you know, Billy's team's off in the bathroom right now, so I'll cut in line here. No. That's nice. You showed up, you know, and you're fourth on that list. The three teams ahead of you will go, and if Billy's team's in the bathroom for four hours, go get them out yourself because they're ahead of you on the list. And there is, you know, a a little bit of... uh, you know, nicety about that. They're definitely, you don't have to worry about losing your spot. They will come and find you when your spot comes up. 
few other things. Um, smoking. They will smoke in their harnesses. Heck, they'll smoke on rope a lot of times. Whether the instructions say you're not allowed to smoke in harness or, you know, whether it's clearly stated or not, they're going to. As a North American, that, you know, kind of pops eyes out of our heads. Hey, you know, if you get a burn in this harness larger than this, that's out of service. They just kind of look at you and go, so don't drop cigarette ash on your harness. Um, But that's something to think about. If you're working over there and dealing with stuff over there, that attitude and just that culture is a little bit different. Language. If you're going to go over from North America and there's two Canadian teams and a U.S. team this year, kudos to both of them for going over, kudos for both of them. Finishing, they both did excellent. Um, I guess I say both because I don't include our team in that. Our team's been there a while and learned some of these rules the hard way. If you can show up to a site and say hello in French and my name's Mark and this is my team in French, you get a lot more out of people than if you show up and can't speak the language. And just that little bit of trying will allow them, I think this is pretty much travel basics 101, will give them a little bit of trying for you in English to make sure that you understand what you're doing. And that can be huge because there, you know, I don't know the whole story around it, but one of the English speaking teams um, moved a patient and they were dung points for it because of patient comfort. Other teams move the patient in the same way. From what I can ascertain, the other teams asked, hey, can I move the patient like this? Do I need to put them in a stretcher? What's the medical conditions here? And that was kind of like a little checkbox. Yes, they did that. No, they're fine. Off you run. You can take your patient as is. If you didn't ask that question, and this is where the language thing comes in, or didn't attempt to ask that question, then you got dung, you know, I'd hit on some marks for patient comfort because you didn't do the triage or that priority action approach or your ABCs, whatever you want to call it from wherever you're from, to ascertain that the patient was able to be moved in that fashion. So that's a big thing with language. And once again, it's, uh, yeah, something to think about. A couple other things with Europe, and this is just in general, if you're going over to do these types of events. A lot of the countries, not so much in Namur, but you get into some of the other ones, stuff closes down between like noon to 2, 11.30 to 1.30, that kind of thing. Well, I know Italy, I know Switzerland, parts of France, I have seen it in Belgium. Staff get lunch off. They don't want to deal with you during lunch. Um, so think about that, especially when you're running around the day before trying to get stuff accomplished. There's a good possibility that you may not be able to get things accomplished during those hours. One of the other things is stats. There's generally stats that fall in around here because you start getting into the summer months. Stats in North America are, hey, let's put everybody in the mall because it's a money-making day because no one's at work. Stats in Europe are, no one's at work. Skip the whole, let's put everybody in the mall because it's a money-making day. Just nobody's at work. Things are on reduced hours if they're open at all. This is including transit. So if you're going in pre or post for a trip to do training with somebody, think about that. Take that into your travel plans. So last but not least, I said I was going to talk about three different um, pieces of equipment. I'm going to talk about actually a couple more. We were very fortunate to get sponsored by team, uh, by um, manufacturers again, Kazan Rope. Um, 
they're out of France, northern France. Met them first couple years ago at an, after an A plus A. They lent us rope for this event. We've tried other people's ropes. This is not to slight anybody else that's provided us rope, but in this particular year, shipping rope over to, for us is one of the most expensive things. I mean, you can imagine you basically need 600 meter, 330 foot ropes, putting those on a plane, getting them over there. That's everybody needs an extra bag basically right away. Um, depending on where you're flying, that's anywhere from 50 to if you book over there, it can be 150 euro getting that home. And a lot of times it ain't worth the rope to bring it back. So Kazan was very kind enough through uh, Guillaume, a friend of ours that manages a rope access company in Little France. He got that for us. Very nice ropes. Uh, I've only used them limitedly before. We've got a couple samples from them. Um, these here, though, we had three different types and very nice. Uh, we noticed we climbed them, hauled with them, two-person loads, edges they wore well they ran through devices well really have nothing negative to say about them so thank you very much for those ropes uh camp camp sent us some helmets and some harnesses harnesses we used for grimp north america the armor helmet we used in europe can't use the armor helmet in north america because i do not believe it holds an ansi or a csa rating on it however we can use it in europe the boys that used the harnesses for Grimp North America were really impressed with them. They were concerned about the ANSI. Uh, there's a, a unique buckle on the leg loop of that particular harness. They were worried about that popping out or coming loose, especially in confined spaces. Never did. Um, the harness has a little more crotch room uh, than the old ANSI GT. So this is the newer style than 2019 version, and it definitely has more crotch room than the old one. Uh, some guys don't like it. Harnesses are one of those things where it's very much personal preference. Um, and some guys just don't like the way it hangs on them. And I think that's where you kind of get the difference between a North American fit harness, which tends to be a little bit bigger. I find the European harnesses tend to be more like their pants or their, their jeans, kind of like that skinny jean type thing. Um, which looks good when I'm tall and lanky, but when I start gaining a couple pounds, it becomes a little problematic on my end as well. So outside of that, um, CMC Harkin. I throw them both into one. I'll start CMCs directly alone. Uh, the Atom Harness. They sent me an Atom to wear for this event. I had trialed the Atom when I redid my level threes in February in Chicago. Had some feedback for them with the upper... Um, external attachment being fairly loose they did fix that up they provided a bit of a stiffener with that they were using i believe it's ct um, hardware for the chest ascender in there the seat of that harness like the class two piece of it by far one of the most comfortable harnesses i have worn the top i like the way it's cut over the shoulders i like the way they've padded it out i like the way that some of the cut is on that that front point is still, I'd have to go do more rope access work in it, like uh, rope access rescues where I'm connecting directly to it to give you 100% feedback. For rope rescue, it works fine. I can't comment once again on the rope access. I just need to go into the shop and spend a day running some level three rescues in it just to take a look. But all in all, from the rope rescue point of view, harness was great while I was over there. Only two little concerns, and I mentioned it to CMC. It's not like it's uh, a shock coming across here. 
I find the sizing, I grab a large harness and I've got the thing cinched almost completely tight. Um, and that's just the difference between a North American sizing and a European sizing. Um, and I get it, there's a bit of a wider body range a lot of times. So that's one thing if you're wearing it, it's not going to affect you user style. Just think about it when you're ordering it. The other thing I've asked them is to stiffen up some of the webbing a little bit. Um, the webbing is a little bit soft, which is great. It doesn't cut into you, but it does when you're hanging the amount of gear off you that we do at something like a grimp day, does cause the um, webbing to fold over a little bit and becomes a little bit more difficult to run through the buckles. You've got to you know, feed it back a little bit and get those folds out. So a little more stiffness in the webbing, and I'm not saying go crazy on that, you know, just like a 10% more. It's almost there. All in all, though, I like the concept of it, being able to take it off and put on what it is you wish so that you don't, you know, if you want it steel or aluminum or if you don't want E-rings, you know, those things are all doable. Uh, the other thing I would love to see on a harness, and I'm throwing this out there, I've already asked CMC, I would love to see the sternal and the dorsal go to a non-aluminum or non-metal ring going to a uh, sewing termination there, something you can stack some carabiners in, make it a little lighter. Um, it's funny. I mean, we all have to wear these harnesses with these dorsal Ds on them. However, in the rescue and the rope access world, does anybody actually ever use those? I mean, confined space rescue, yes, hence why I do want one there. But having a soft link there, I think it would be perfect. So just trying to get that thought process changed. I understand there's a lot around that. That's an ANSI drop and a CSA drop standard on that. And, uh, you know, the soft webbings obviously going to have to be made to accept those types of hits. Uh, the Ninja, a Harkin Ninja foot ascender. No problems with it at all. I like it because it is a little easier to get on and off a rope. I did a 70 meter climb with that foot ascender. I'm old, I'm lazy. I like the kind of, I call it the inchworm technique. I throw my foot loop on my left foot. I leave my foot ascender on my right. I basically do both feet up, stand up, you know, hand slide, hand slide, kind of inchworming my way up there. That way I'm taking the rope stretch and weight out of there with my feet while I'm sliding my hand and my chest to send her up. Um, no problems on the climb at all. After the 70 meter climb, you come, you got to pop a little, you kind of get sucked underneath the bridge a little bit on the climb. The ropes are right against it. So you've got to kind of, you know, get yourself out, walk up the side of that bridge, kind of an awkward transition where there's, you know, there is a little bit of a metal step there, but you've got to make yourself, make your way, sorry, over like a five foot high suicide fence. It would be the best way to describe it from a North American's point of view. And uh, so it's an awkward little climb to get out of there. And yeah, that thing just pops in and out as need be. It was great. And the one area I did have a concern with it, I talked about the dam scenario. We decided to get some brownie points with the Europeans by doing the typical drop loop body haul. That's uh, you know something we've seen over there quite a lot. And if you rig their way, you end up, you know, this is a competition. You do what you got to do to win. Um, <laughs> We started with the foot ascender, which is the way I traditionally did that. And because the rope was coming off the anchor at an angle, it did pop out. And where I would have to position my body in order to provide the right pressure for my foot to be in there, I would have been standing like almost on the hole going down in the ground. So I chose to pop out the foot ascender and went with my chest ascender, just did body squats instead of, you know, foot squats or leg squats. Um, 
with that. And that's one aspect where that easy in out did hurt a little bit. Um, obviously, they're very large into Petzl over in Europe. And, you know, with the Petzl, especially with the um, little lock on, I can't remember the name of it anymore, uh, sticks in with something like that. So it's not a fault of the device. It's just one of those areas where in order for me to keep my foot so that it was on the outside to keep pressure on that rope, I had my back, you know, I was basically standing on the edge of a hole with my back to it. And although I was clipped in, I just didn't feel that was a safe spot to be playing. So I went back into chest ascender on that. Last but not least, the clutch. And I did this at the 32 minute mark of this so that everybody had to listen to me rambling on for the other 32 minutes first. So the clutch, um, straight up, I think it's going to be an MPD killer. I can't imagine as a fire department why I would recommend you buy an MPD once this gets released. It has the high efficiency pulley in it. It makes a very cool sound, sound of progress as you're hauling. It, you can be rig it and unrig it, leaving your carabiners in play. You know, with the MPD, you've got to take it off of the carabiner at the anchor. You've got to open it up. That brings in that you know, issue where you could certainly drop it. This here stays clipped to the anchor. So it's, it's like rigging an ID or a rig. It's, it's in and out or a D4 or, you know, pick your device like that. It's, it's in and out, in and out, in and out. It's quick. It's simple. And you can repel with it. It is a little bit more difficult I found to repel with. Um, it does require you to feed rope. At first we did a 90... I was going to say a 94 meter rappel with that um, off the side of the cathedral and Mechelen. You can look it up. It's 92 or 94 meters. Significant height to the point where any device, when you come off the top, you're pushing rope through it. I mean, there's just no two ways about it. Heck, you'd be pushing rope through a brake rack on two bars with that much rope weight underneath you. But where I would traditionally find the ID would start to feed... I still had to push rope. I found I had to move my hand up a little bit higher to get more of a direct feed into the device. Once again, not a problem of the device, more of a training issue where your body mechanics, and I noticed this in my next statement, but your body mechanics are used to something and it just takes redoing that body mechanics. So on the rappel, like I said, I had to lift up my hand a little bit higher to feed it. It did heat up the same amount that I would say. I mean, I think everybody that's seen our stuff has seen the video we put out from Germany last year where we were boiling water off the side of an MPD. Uh, we've done that with um, IDs and rigs as well. And this is the same. It's You're putting that much rope through it. It does heat up quite significantly. Um, obviously it's passed the testing. I believe it's now through C as well. I know it is through NFPA. So it's obviously not to a point where it causes a problem. We might be moving a little fast for the device as well, because there is a speed or a descent time in there, that standard as well. However, and just a point to note, I talked about body mechanics a couple seconds ago. I used it when I did the rope access course or the grimp course there at Mechelen. And I found I had to re-rig myself a couple of times where I, I run a rig traditionally for rope access, which is a little, obviously has a lot smaller profile. And just where I would leave my handled and chest ascenders when I'm popping in and out of ascent to descent, I found I had to stop and re-rig myself a couple of times. It's amazing 
how close your body mechanics work after all those hours on rope where you're just dealing and they're just inches in between your devices as you're popping in and out when you're doing that at speed. And then when I started doing it with the clutch, it's like clank, clank, clank as I'm hitting the thing because it is taller than a rig and it actually required me to stop and think about what I was doing and make sure I left just a little bit more clearances in there to move back and forth. Once again, it's a user, that's a training thing, not so much a, a device fault. So back to, you know, I think this is an MPD killer. We repelled 94 meters with it. We used it for three days of competition in Grimp Day. We, uh, the training we did with it, we did a pickoff underneath the bridge, pitch head style. So, you know, had the devices up top. And the two guys basically did twin tension pitch heads on body hauls with clutches. So clipped into their clutches, they're standing on the edge of a bridge, just doing body squats, the two of them at the same time. And we're doing this just to, just to test the device. Like we just want to run stuff. That is so efficient. They lifted that single person load in a stretcher with two guys doing body hauls on that. And it was just like, just like butter. They just smooth, like just boom, up they came. No problem at all. Um, we tensioned high lines with it. We tensioned skate blocks with it. We did tight line skate blocks. Like I said, 94 meter repels. We did long lowers. We used it for a lot of different things. And I, you know, it, it performed. There's, it was no complaints. There's no issues. Um, I guess back the bus up. One little thing we did find is if you shark fin it, or as they call it now, double clutching. Uh, we used to call it shark finning, two devices, same uh, together there using the Rock Exotica Swiva Beaner, which was what we use, or the new Kong Twist Beaner holds them in place. When you grab that particular device and squeeze them together, and this will work with any device, so it's not like it's a problem with the clutch. Um, the ID, the rig will do it. When you squeeze them together and lay and pull a rope out of them or whatnot, you can inhibit the handle from moving forward on the device that's being pinched. So the outside device, because the handle is now meshed or pushed into the top of the inside device. And because they're in a vertical orientation, that handle is now squeezed. And on the clutch, if you squeeze it in the location between your panic stop and um, your kind of ascent mode, there's a little gap in there and it's on you can see it on the back of the device if you hold it and squeeze it tight in there like push it against a rock or something like that you will spin rope out if it's not held against something or being physically or mechanically held open like that obviously then the handle drops forward when you pull rope and it catches belays the way it's designed to but by human error we figured out that you can certainly defeat that and spin rope out of that thing either intentionally or unintentionally, depending on what exactly it is you're doing. So that's something to think about with that device. Once again, it's a training thing. Uh, you know, taking these types of devices, harnesses brand new stuff into competition, it does bring up these training issues a lot faster. As you use it in your departments, in your ERTs, personally, rope access, what have you, um, you're going to find these probably as well or find more. We'd love to hear from you about that if you do find anything more. But back to that clutch, I think fire departments would be remiss not to go to something like that where 
You've got the MPD style high efficiency pulley. You've got the Becky. You can build your three, five complex sevens off of same way you're running an MPD, but you can also give it to your rescuer to repel in with an ASAP or an ASAP lock and provide that patient contact. You can do rope access with it for Pete's sake. You can do pitch heads, we do cross hauls with it. It's, um, it's a multi-purpose type device. It's, it's really good for that. So enough of Grimp Day Europe. Um, got a couple more of these coming up, as I mentioned before, once I figure out how to throw Skype through here. We're going to be talking to Kelly out of Washington, D.C. on some aerial ladder testing. We're going to be talking to um, some arborist guys, just about some arb stuff, which would be kind of cool. So stay tuned for those. Thanks a lot.